Hello and welcome once again to the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Uh, today is Thanksgiving, even though you're listening to this presumably on a different day in the future, unless we've invented time travel, which we don't have the budget for. Uh, I, I'm excited this Thanksgiving to be with my family, um, and I hope that everyone else is able to enjoy time with their family as well. Uh, it's, it's nice with a terrible disease like ALS to be able to share in some blessings. And I'm also happy to be sharing the blessings of another family that's been very important to the fight against ALS, and that is the family of Scott Mackler, uh, who passed away from ALS a little bit ago, um, but who, has, who he and his family have made a lasting impression that's benefited hundreds, of, actually thousands of people with ALS in the last 15 years plus uh, through the assistive technology program and other uh, fundraising and advocacy and awareness efforts throughout the past 15 years. Today we're going to be talking with Alexander and Noah Mackler. Uh, they are uh, the sons of Scott Mackler. They've been very involved in the efforts going on in Delaware and with our chapter for the Assistive Technology Program. And we're going to be discussing some of those things that this Thanksgiving we're very grateful for. And of course, we're grateful for all year round, and I think our families are as well. Uh, before we get into the conversation, uh, I'd like to tell you that you can get involved in the fight against ALS, including supporting the Mackler, the Scott Mackler uh, Assistive Technology Program at www.alsphiladelphia.org. You can support a walk to defeat ALS at www.gpcwalktodefeatals.org. Even though the walks are over for 2015, you can still donate. You can save the date for next year's walks all over our area, including in Delaware and Philadelphia. And you can also follow us on social media, all at ALS Philadelphia, and that's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, and everything else. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and give it a five-star review, or at least a four-star, it's pretty good, um, and leave any comments there so we can continue to move up the rankings and have more people to listen and spread awareness about ALS. With that all said, thank you, Alexander and Noah, for joining our podcast. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. Great. Well, you sound very similar on the phone, so I'm going to be very confused the whole time. Um, I, like I said, today is Thanksgiving and we're recording this. Uh, it shows a dedication of all of us to the cause. Um, and so I hope you guys are having a good Thanksgiving with your family. We, uh, we are. We hope you are as well. We are taking a break uh, from preparing the turkey. We're back. Noah and I uh, are back in Delaware. We, I live in uh, outside of Washington, D.C., and Noah lives in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, so this, this was this was our father's favorite holiday, uh, which we talk about every year, uh, and it's ours as well. So it's just nice to be back with family. So, um, well, now you brought it up. Why was it your father's favorite holiday? Uh, uh, quite simply because he loved to eat. Oh, uh, he before he got sick, uh, he was known as a bottomless pit, uh, among his many other qualities. He was a, he he ran constantly. He was a marathoner several times. Uh, and he and he fueled it. Uh, he fueled his uh, athletics by being a bottomless pit. So that's why he loved this holiday. Oh, now here, here where I'm at visiting my family in Pittsburgh, I feel like I'm more of a growing pit with all of the cookies and things my mom has made. <laughs> yeah, the rest of us have that. The rest of us have that problem. We didn't have. We don't have dad's metabolism. Uh, I've seen the pictures of your of you guys. I don't think that it's the same level as other people. So I'm not going to feel too um, sorry for you in this respect. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Uh, but, you know, uh, we're thankful on our end for all the efforts you guys have done. Um, but a lot of people listening probably don't know much about your family or you. Um, 
it's because of people listening to this podcast that aren't even connected to our chapter. So briefly, let us know who Scott Mackler is and was. Uh, well, Scott, this is Noah. Scott Mackler, dad, is a was a physician scientist, um, and so he grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and then he went to basically got every single other degree he could have possibly gotten from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Um, he got an MD, PhD, and because he was a physician scientist, he saw both patients and he also um, did research, which was his passion. And um, uh, until the day he died, he was going into the University of Pennsylvania uh, four days a week, usually, uh, driving up from Delaware and using assistive technology, uh, a brain-computer interface, to control his computer, deal with emails, write grants, and conduct all aspects of his research. And and also in the last uh, few years of his research, he switched his research focus a little bit and began to study um, ALS actually, so the etiology of ALS. Um, one of the proteins he and his colleagues discovered that was involved in um, cocaine addiction, which was what he what he initially started studying back in the 90s, um, one of the proteins that they discovered sort of uh, serendipitously uh, interacts with one of the proteins that maybe people on your podcast know about, TDP43, um, mm-hmm. which is involved in misfolding, and uh, lots of people think it's involved in the, in the development of ALS or is somehow linked to uh, ALS. So he started studying the relationship between those two proteins um, towards towards the end of his research career. You know, that's a really uh, interesting thing. I knew about his um, drug addiction research, not in terms of understanding all of it, because obviously he should know it better than I do. Uh, but I didn't realize a connection to ALS, and it kind of reinforces some of the things we've talked about with research that. When we know more about ALS, it'll give us clues to help out with a lot of other diseases, but apparently also with things like addiction, too, could come about through ALS research. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're, you know, our, our bodies are very interconnected and our brain is very interconnected, and, so, um, and, and there are so many proteins in our body, and so a lot of them interact and affect multiple systems, and, and um, so, I mean, it makes, makes a lot of sense that you know, we have what's, what's in the scientific world or, or, you know, in the diagnostic world called comorbidities where you have multiple diseases and things like that or lots of things that sh- have shared biological bases. Um, but, yeah, but our dad was just, you know, he was he had an insatiable curiosity uh, and he loved science. And so that was where he spent, you know, 90% of his time was, was working on science. And did he share that with you where you guys ended up being of the same mind in terms of having that insatiable curiosity about science and just general life? So, uh, for one of us, it did. This is Alexander. So, for Noah, it absolutely did. Uh, and he can speak to that uh, on his own. For me, uh, I like to think that I share uh, both our parents and my brother's curiosity uh, about our professions. But my profession is, uh, I'm sort of the black sheep of the family. I'm a lawyer. I've had a career in politics uh, as a staffer. Uh, for a whole bunch of different people, and uh, so so I and I had from a from a very early age uh, had very little interest in pursuing a research career. I sort of stumbled into politics, uh, and I just hope that I carry our parents uh, and my brother's same intellectual curiosities and qualities to my work, but just in a very different way. Noah, however, uh, is pursuing a career in science. Well, before Noah speaks about his thing, as someone who's dabbling a little bit in politics myself. I think having that 
that bit of insatiable uh, curiosity definitely helps in politics, even if it's not as science focused sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I uh, we, I mean, you're in the public policy world too, but you have a, a very high understanding of this. I mean, what you need to be able to do, almost no matter what you're doing, is to be able to delve into a number of different issues, uh, if not at the same time, in very quick succession. Uh, and so I think it's, you know, we, we were just talking about this, actually. I think my my gene pool, like Noah's, having having parents who are uh, college professors and researchers uh, has instilled in me a desire to sort of sniff out anything new and anything that I find interesting. Mm. And Noah, so what what have you been doing uh, that's kind of fueled the same path that your dad helped laid out in terms of being curious about the world? Um, well, so both of our parents uh, are are scientists and researchers. My dad was a researcher when he was alive, um, and I don't know. They just like when I was younger, they used to take me to zoos and aquariums, and I always had this. Uh, passion for studying animals, and I wanted to become a naturalist, essentially. And um, so that's what I did for my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, and my parents really encouraged me in just to be a scientist and to enjoy science and to, uh, you know, take it for what it is and and pursue my passion, which was fantastic, and they were very supportive. Um, and then I sort of, my, my research focus morphed a little bit um, through my PhD and now in my postdoc at Duke University. Um, where I have a much more human health focus to my research, where I'm trying to understand uh, the effect of the social environment and how it can influence individuals' health and well-being and survival. Um, but, I mean, my parents have just always been extremely supportive, and, and being around scientists and knowing what a scientist's life is like, um, that, that always made me want to be an, an academic and a scientist. I think that's, that's pretty much it. And my parents, yeah, they're just very, very supportive of it. And I, I want to just take a moment to say that while we have your dad's name on all of our literature in terms of the assistive technology program, and it is in his honor and memory, your mom is equally of importance, and we still and we love everybody in your family. We're not obviously he's the most important person in terms of having ALS, but we do a show, do definitely appreciate Lynn as well. Oh yeah, no. There's, I mean, my brother and I appreciate her every single day. I think there was, there was no way our family would have held together for 15 years without dad, our dad being alive with ALS, uh, without our mom being there to make sure that everything went smoothly. And without without her, my dad would not have been able to. Our dad would not have been able to, you know, uh, continue his work and even continue living a, a happy life. So you know, we've spent a few minutes here talking about the fact that. Your dad instilled in you guys, your parents both instilled in you guys, um, a curiosity about the world and, and always being um, thoughtful about everything, no matter if it's politics or science or just human interaction. Uh, and that was what he did with his life even after having ALS. And I preface that with, do you think that was part of his able, ability to live a longer life with ALS than he might have otherwise because he continued that pursuit of knowledge and understanding his even if his body couldn't be as active, his mind was more active than almost anybody in the world. Yeah, I mean, as, as you and many of your listeners know, uh, ALS is a disease that robs a person of their body, but not of their mind. Um, and, you know, initially, my, my brother and I were very young when our father was diagnosed. Um, I was 12, my brother was 14. Um, and initially, our dad did not want to get a uh, 
have a trach so that he could, you know, go on event and live longer. And right, if he did not go on event, he would have lived a much shorter life. Um, and that was because he didn't think he would be able to continue and, and live a fulfilling life, uh, a passionate life, where he'd be able to continue his work and do his research. Um, and fortunately for everyone who's been touched by our father, and especially uh, me and my brother and, and our mom, uh, you know, the, this was when this was in you know 1999, 2000, when technology was developing very, very rapidly. Um, and so our father was able to uh, get in touch with some some folks who used uh, an, an eye-mounted computer, an eye-tracking computer device, um, where he had a keyboard essentially attached to um, glasses, and he could look, and it would track where, his, where he was looking, and he was able to control his computer that way. And it was very slow and tedious, but he was still able to continue what his passion, continue to communicate with us, um, and to continue his work. Um, so I think that, you know, having, wanting to see me and my brother grow up, um, into adults and also uh, being able to, to spend time with our mom and being able to continue his research, I think, really uh, drove him to, you know, gave, gave him something something to live for, I guess, with Ayla. I think that's a really strong point, and I think it shows that, you know, your body, your physical body, isn't enough to have something to live for, no matter if it's ALS or anything else. And, and as you said at the start, your dad was someone who obviously cared a lot about his body. He was a runner and very active. So ALS is devastating beyond what it did to his mind. And you saw that with other people too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, um, we are, we never cease to be amazed, um, by the perseverance that, that folks with ALS show. I mean, we just, we see, uh, we have friends all the time uh, who we talk to or see on Facebook, for example. Uh, we see a lot of folks, particularly around the 5K at the end of every October. And it is remarkable the perseverance uh, that each and every one of them uh, shows just to sort of get up out of bed and carry on their daily lives every day. And I'm sure that watching your, your father go through it and then understanding other people it just as he instilled a uh, personal traits in you in terms of how to interact with the world and your own um, personalities. That also uh, there, the the perseverance of other people you meet with ALS definitely puts a lot in perspective for you every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the one of the, the I don't think there are really good things that come of uh, having a family member diagnosed with ALS. Uh, but I think one of the byproducts is that it teaches you some real perspective uh, at whatever age it is that you, that you found out that your loved one has ALS, uh, and it teaches you to look at life a little bit differently uh, and to not really uh, sit around and wait for things and to take, it sounds cliche, uh, but to try and take advantage of every day and every week and every month and every year. And that's something that what my I think my, my uh, mother and my father uh, both already thought before dad was diagnosed, but it's something that Noah and I both learned from a very early age. And I think that perspective is a lot easier thing to live than to just say. I think you, you hear it on TV and read it in books. People say to live every day as if it's your last or appreciate every day, but yep. you know, it's just impossible to do until you actually have it right in your face. Yep, absolutely. I think that you... Uh, it's easy to talk about, uh, like you said, uh, 
but it is always, frankly, inspirational for us to see other people who have the same sort of uh, zest for life. So I, I use this all to preface about the actual uh, Scott A. Mackler, Ph.D., M.D., uh, assistive technology program, because assistive technology and speech technology wasn't just something that was important because you knew that people were losing their ability to talk, but it's to give people that purpose and that communication, that connection, to continue those traits that your family values. Right. Dad, like Noah said, Dad originally thought that once he was able to, once he was no longer able to communicate, um, then that was sort of the end of his usefulness uh, as a parent and as a uh, and as a physician scientist. He quickly realized that that was not the case. And so this assistive technology gives folks with ALS a new lease on life. It, it as long, Dad's, uh, Dad's attitude for the last sort of decade plus that he was with us was as long as I can continue to communicate and as long as I can continue to work um, with the assistance of this technology, uh, then he was going to trudge on uh, and continue on with us. We, we, we observed the progression of the technology over the course of almost 15 years, like Noah said, and what it unlocks for people who suffer from ALS. It allows you to continue to communicate with your loved ones. In many cases, it allows you to continue your life's work, whatever that may be. Uh, it really continues. It, it, it allows you to continue uh, leading a uh, fulfilling, if not very, very different life than you were used to before. I, I just had the opportunity to be down in New Orleans uh, last month, and I had an opportunity to go visit Steve Gleason, and he's doing, you know, substantially similar things down in New Orleans as what the ALS Philadelphia chapter is doing in the greater Philadelphia. He is, first of all, the technology that he uses is stunning. It's amazing how far it's advanced even in the two years since the, since our father passed. That's, that was the, that was my first takeaway. Hmm. And the second one is they provide that te- that very same technology that Microsoft works uh, with Steve Gleason on. Uh, Steve's foundation provides to ALS patients in the New Orleans area, and he so he's doing uh, on a much more national scale and a higher profile level than Dad did. Uh, exactly what our dad did in the greater Philadelphia area. As you know, Tony, this is something that has been mimicked. Uh, the the Scotty Mackler Fund has been has been mimicked uh, in across this country. We couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, and I think that um, that's got to be a really cool sense of pride on your end, knowing that this thing that was working out here is continuing to grow and help patients well beyond just the hundreds of people here. Even if it's not the same exact money, the mission is growing, and that that mission, that understanding, is really what's more important in terms of what you guys were looking for and what the program does, because it's not just about money. It's about the long-term impact of what it does. Absolutely, and one of the things that we continue to learn is that as communication improves between chapters uh, and between patients across the country and really across the world, you see what systems work for other patients um, and other families, and it gives uh, current uh, families living with ALS now a lot of options. That, you know, we sort of had to figure things out on our own, as many people do. You know, when Dad started to lose control of his uh, facial muscles, how do we communicate if he doesn't have the technology with him? And 
I, you know, I went down when I saw Steve Gleason. He has a he has an entirely different grid, and I asked him where they came up with it, and he showed me a YouTube video of a guy in outside of Seattle who uses the same grid, and he and his, he and his father put it up on YouTube, and that's where Steve Gleason saw it when Steve first got sick. And so these there that is something that's not sort of limited to the advent of the technology. That's just patient communication and, and folks not having to reinvent the wheel, their wheel on their own. But the but the technology side of this is absolutely remarkable. One of the one of the wonderful things about uh, living in this time when we live is that technology continues to advance, uh, and the benefits for it's not just you know smaller phones and smartphones and things like that and technology in your car. It's changing the lives of, of people who uh, would be darn near hopeless 20, 30 years ago. How much of this that exists today did you and your family think was possible 15 years ago or 10 years ago or even five years ago? Like, has it just grown far beyond you or did you have even greater visions of where you're, you hoped it would go and you think is possible down the road? I think, uh, I can't say we're all that surprised it's because we, you know again we be, we live in a world where technology continues to advance beyond folks wildest dreams uh, but it's still sort of amazing to see how it applies to the patients I mean we, I was explaining this to Steve Gleason when my dad first got sick he had this note was talking about some of the really um, sort of draconian uh, technology that he was using I mean he had a he had a white pad with a pen that we would sort of wedge in between his fingers and he would draw a letter, one letter at a time on the white pad and it would come up on this little bulky little box that looked like it was out of like a, a movie from the early 1980s basically and that's how we would communicate this thing called, this, this program called Co-Writer uh, and that evolved into being able to write directly uh, onto his computer and in his email box. Uh, and then that evolved into BCI, then I mentioned the brain-computer interface, where Dad was really a guinea pig, and he was wearing, excuse me, he was wearing a cap on his head that was reading his brain waves, and he used that for many, many years, and reading his eye movements. And then when I went to see Steve Gleason, he's not wearing anything. He's not wearing a cap. There's anything special in his eyes. He is looking at a Microsoft Surface, a, a tablet. And it's reading his eye movements, and Steve communicates at a much faster rate than our father ever did, and much quicker than anybody I had ever seen. Uh, and he can almost keep up with the very speedy pace of conversation with people in the room. I mean, it's not, you know, our dad would take 30 seconds to a minute to get out of the letter, uh, and in 30 seconds, Steve can churn out a whole sentence or a whole response or open a new window or open up this YouTube video he was showing or send an email. I mean, it was... He can control his door, his lights, everything in his house. Uh, it is, I think you always hope that the technology will continue to advance uh, in good ways for patients. Uh, but it is it is really a uh, remarkably positive development that we hope continues to grow and continues to be uh, accessible to patients. Yeah, I, I think, and I, I think you may agree that part of your attitude towards it in addition to your, your understanding, the disease in your family is a generational thing. Um, and I don't even mean by age, uh, but you want people who aren't surprised by this progress because then you right. kind of have the vision of not that, oh, I'm so shocked that we're here and it's great, but this is what I'm expecting and I expect it to do more in five years. Like I'm expecting exponential growth because I know what it can do. 
Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, we're, we we expect these things to happen. I mean, we didn't think, we we just we didn't know what would be coming next, but we expected these developments to happen. And I think that it's fantastic that they are, and the fact that we expect it means that that we will continue to rapidly progress and and help develop better technology to help uh, patients live with ALS. Yeah. So one of the things that like we talked about that is an attitude that you your whole family shares is the normalcy of connecting with interconnectedness. And that's something that's a word that's important to me personally, um, not keeping things in silos, whether it's at work or in politics like Alexander um, or in science like Noah or just in life um, and bringing things together. And you see that the communication does that. Um, have you seen the progress of how this, this technology has allowed people to, um, improve their whole health situation beyond just communicating with people like yeah i think that uh you're absolutely right that that there are many examples uh, all over the place where it's not just um improving their communication or their work or, or whatever um it is like you said improving whole health improving everything around them uh something that is easily overlooked that is, you know, obviously present every minute of the day in, in folks' lives is just sort of personal comfort. Dad used to say that in order to live with ALS, uh, you have to have a great amount of dignity and a and an ability to be uncomfortable. Uh, because the little things that, that we don't think about, the most we don't think about, shifting your weight when you're sitting in a chair, rolling over when you're lying in bed, whatever, um, even moving your arms uh, while you're sitting working, are things that folks with ALS need help with. And that's an example where if you have enough technology, you can explain very quickly what you need and have someone there with you uh, to make your day-to-day and your, you know, your complete health that you're more comfortable. And as, as the world gets more connected and as patients get more connected and chapters get more connected, uh, those are the kind of stories that folks can share on how to, how to live life uh, more smoothly and more easily. And I think that the technology as it, as it existed 15, 16 years ago, is a lot different now, a lot less bulky. Um, you, you saw the advent of the iPad and tablets, and not only that, but the acceptance of some of this technology that now it's less weird and awkward to see someone like your father, like Steve Gleason, in this contraption. Um, so if you, and, and that means that people can lead a normal life because they're, they're seen as more normal. Have you seen that kind of like personal cultural progress as well? I, I think a little bit, but I think where we see where we have these interactions the most are, are usually at ALS events, um, and not as much. I mean, it is it's it's a, it's a disease that affects a lot of people, but it's still very much it's a small proportion of the population. Um, and uh, I don't I don't think we're at that point yet where ALS patients are able to go out and travel and do everything that they were able to do. Before I don't. I mean, I hope we will get to that point where they're able to live uh, a, a, the best quality of life they possibly can, which includes you know being able to travel and do things that whatever they were doing before they were sick. Um, but in terms of interacting with patients at, I mean, ALS events or, uh, or ALS charity events or the 5K. I mean, I, I think the the interactions, at least for us. But we have. I think my brother and I have a biased uh, perspective here because I think we. We grew up with a father who had ALS, and that was normal for us. And so, 
interacting with people who have ALS, I think is we're we're very comfortable doing that. Right, but I'm not even talking about just ALS. I mean, now that like um, my first interaction with your program was like a month into working at the chapter, um, a gentleman named Mike. He had Bulbar ALS, which is those are a lot of the people that are using the speech technology, um, and he was using a tablet that we helped provide and the program that we helped provide, and he gave a commencement address with his iPad, which two years before would have pretty much been impossible. Um, so it seems like, like right then and there, it's like, well, if people have any sort of issue like this, this is a technology that you know people can use and be like Mike instead of Mike who has ALS or whatever. And so, um, you know, that's something that definitely wasn't in the cards 15 years ago when this program began. Oh, yeah. So in, in that case, I completely agree. I mean, the technology is changing so much that people are becoming defined less by their diseases and more by who they are, which is the way they should be defined. Um, and I think our, our father was, I mean, even with just email, our father was fortunate enough to be able to, you know, continue to have his own communications with colleagues and write his own papers. And when he was judged in the scientific community, he was judged as, you know, Scott Mackler, not Scott Mackler who has ALS. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it. Yes, I think it's it's changed a lot, and I think, um, and and I hope it will continue to change even more, so that you know there's that people become more defined about by who they are, and the technology sort of eliminates some of these other descriptors that may not be uh, important. Well, and I think that's just a credit to what the program does, is that one we're acknowledging that we're not totally there yet, and it's a it's a leap to get people to totally be judged by their character and not by their disease. Um, but that it's a, it's an even greater goal of the program and letting people know that the uh, Scott Mackler assistive technology program is not just about giving devices and training people on devices. It's about um, making sure they're more accepted, making sure they can live a quality of life that's greater because of them. And, you know, just letting people know the, the value of it is greater than just the monetary value. I think that's absolutely right. It's, it's, it is the sort of, uh, I don't think it's the primary stated goal of the program. Maybe it should be. Uh, but I think it is certainly uh, one of the primary effects uh, of the difference, you know, the difference that the program has been, and, and similar programs have been able to make. So you've met a lot of people with ALS because you've been to a number of events. Um, I know you've been to the annual luncheon and you've been to um, advocacy efforts and things like that. The event you've been at most is your own event, which is kind of selfish. Uh, the uh, the Mackler 5K, which happens every year. So tell us a little bit about that and also some of the interactions you've had with people at those events. So we've, we've uh, we said earlier that, that Dad was a devout runner, a uh, marathoner. And so when he first was diagnosed, he thought that it would be appropriate to have a, first of all, to establish a foundation, and then as the main uh, mode of support, to have this annual 5K held in Newark, Delaware, usually on the last Sunday in October. We just had our 16th 5K, starting in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, you know, the, the foundation is, as we like to say, I think has raised over $2 million at this point. Uh, the ta- dad self-selected the course. It is a course... Uh, that begins and ends uh, at the synagogue in Newark uh, where our family belongs and where Noah and I grew up. Uh, and it 
goes mostly through the neighborhood next door, and it is an incredibly hilly course, a very, by far the most challenging 5K course I've ever been on, and I think that's what almost all people who run it say, certainly who run uh, on the East Coast and on your mountains. Uh, and Dad selected it uh, intentionally, and he, every year he would just sort of sit at the finish line and watch with a big smile on his face as people struggled uh, across the end of the 5K. And so we, uh, we carried that on for, like I said, 16 years. It has been an overwhelming success. We every year we have you know hundreds of people. I think the highs we well some years we have as many as six hundred people. Uh, some years it's closer to three hundred. But it's 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 really an event where we get to see people who we only see maybe once a year, maybe once or twice a year at that event. And then we've also uh, we've tried hard and we'll continue to try hard to branch out uh, now that Dad's no longer with us to have other area families come and have it be you know, everyone's 5K. Dad's name's on it, but it's really for all the patients. So we had, this year we had, I don't know, must have been half a dozen uh, folks at ALS there with people supporting them and their caretakers and they had t-shirts and their friends and they're all running in groups or walking in groups. Uh, and that's how we want this event to continue to live on, that, that, that it's not just about our father, that it's about the whole community and everyone with ALS, and it's an opportunity for their friends and family to come from near and far uh, and stand with them and support them and raise a little bit of money, but mostly awareness for a really good cause. And I love the pictures every year. Everyone's always having a good time. Um, I know that um, one person we're hoping to get on the podcast soon, Andrew Miller, he was there this year. Um, the Colby family, we had one of them. Yeah. on, the, and, and they love it. And just in your example of it, you're there to celebrate them even more than the money, which is important because you've raised well over a million dollars through your efforts over the past 16 years. Yeah, I think that that, that the, the, the money uh, was critical in the beginning and continues to be really, really important. Uh, but as we get to a place where, uh, where we've been for the last several years where the, where the foundation has been able to provide the necessary technology, I think, again, the, another goal is raising awareness and, and I don't even mean necessarily uh, in the broader community and in the world, although that's obviously necessary, uh, but raising awareness within the ALS community uh, to, the, uh, to the resources that are available to patients and families uh, who are fighting this and oftentimes feel a little bit isolated, a little bit on their own, uh, who need to know that there's a lot of help out there and that they don't, you know, again, they're not reinventing the wheel on their own and there are some resources at their disposal. And. I think that you, you say very humbly that you're hoping that this will be an event that is for all ALS patients and not just uh, the Scott Mackler event now that your father has sadly passed away. But the Mackler name means something. We go to Dover every year for advocacy. We go to um, Washington, D.C. And personally, I go and I meet with legislators in, in the state capital of Delaware and they say, oh, do you know the Mackler family? And I was like, of course I know the Mackler family. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so they, and they know what that represents. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it's nice. You know, Dad was never, uh, he was always politically engaged, but not necessarily politically active. He never obviously worked in politics. Uh, he did some volunteering on local campaigns. Uh, always very, very engaged, which is he and, he and our mother, where I got the political bug from. Um, but he, and he also never really craved the attention or, or notoriety in any sense. I mean, he, he always said, uh, 
uh, you know, he, even though he was on 60 Minutes and he was featured in national, other national media and the local media a ton, obviously, uh, he always said that he was, that he, well, you know, would have preferred uh, to sort of uh, be left alone and, and not have any attention at all. But he recognized, I think, and certainly the rest of us recognized, the example that he set for everyone around him and, and the inspiration that he provided to anyone and everyone who saw or heard about him. Uh, and so, you know, the, we are now all, I, I think and I hope, reaping the rewards of that, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, political actors uh, in Delaware, Philadelphia, or, or national political actors in Washington, D.C., uh, or just, you know, sort of uh, regular folks going about their lives who, who knew Dad or, or know our family uh, or didn't know him uh, and heard about his story. I mean, both Noah's and my favorite story, one of our favorite stories about folks being inspired by Dad, he did a he would do a talk to medical students every year, uh, almost almost all over the country. One year we were in Michigan, uh, and we got to meet a young woman who saw Dad, uh, who saw the sixty Minutes episode with Dad. She was a I think a tenth grader at the time, uh, and she at the time uh, wanted to grow up uh, and do something a little bit. A very intelligent young woman wanted to grow up and do something a little bit different. Saw the sixty Minutes story about Dad. Uh, heard he was speaking in Michigan. Came and saw him in Michigan. Ended up applying to the University of Pennsylvania, where Dad obviously worked for most of his adult life. Uh, and she decided she wanted to become a neuroscientist, uh, inspired by Dad. And, and uh, you know, we hope uh, and assume that there are a lot of stories like that out there. And that he provided a little bit of inspiration. All he, all he ever wanted to do was make a little bit of difference in the world. This was not the way he had planned on it, uh, but it's, but it's certainly an enormous impact. Well, I mean, that's a great story, and I think that his influence grows in ways that obviously you can't even fathom, because with a program that's giving people a voice, you know, they're speaking about his name and his program constantly. Uh, the Colbys obviously talk about it because the per that person is using assistive technology to, to communicate, and so that influence continues to grow like a pyramid scheme almost, you know, just... Yeah, it, it, it just yeah. keeps going down where the next person saying the the Mackler uh, Scott Mackler and his family allowed me to speak, and then the next person says I'm able to speak, and it keeps going on and on. So that that name is said because people can say it. Yeah, it's really now it's really great. I mean, it is um, uh, whether it's the Colbys or or, or other folks. Uh, the Colbys we share the, the the one of the Colbys caretakers of a a an angel on earth. Uh, guy by the name of Adam Zerwinski, uh was one of Dad's primary caretakers uh, for the last several years of his life. He's just a great guy. Yeah, it's impossible uh, to dislike Adam. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I mean he's just emblematic of uh, you know pretty much all the caretakers we met over the course of the fifteen years that Dad battled ALS. Um, and it, again, to the extent that that anybody sort of carries Dad's. Um, uh, legacy with them. I think it's, it, it's fulfilled Dad's goal of, in some small way, making the world a better place. You know, I, as we're approaching towards the end of our time here, um, it's Thanksgiving and you brought up Adam, and I'm glad you brought him up because you can pronounce his name better than I can. <laughs> um, and you will, you will probably tease him just as the Colbys will in the same ways because he can take it. Um, but we are thankful for caregivers. It was It's National Caregivers Month. We just did that for annual luncheon. Um, so tell me a little bit about your perspective, both in terms of being a family of caregivers, 
um, as you are, but this program, the assistive technology program, helps build better relationships between uh, people with ALS and their caregiver because one of the most frustrating things if you're a caregiver is not being able to understand what someone wants and needs. Yeah, that was a I, lot. I, I'm sorry. I think that's, no, I think that's completely true. I mean, we, I, I think it would have been hard for our dad to develop strong relationships with all of his caregiver, caregivers without being able to communicate with them would actually be impossible. But, but his assistive technology made it easy, uh, easier to, to communicate with them. And he had two primary caregivers uh, during the day. One was Adam Zerwinski and the other was Dana Williams. And Dana was with him for uh, over a decade. Um, and, and the two of them, Dana, until Adam started working for us the last few years, um, but Dana would take him into the University of Pennsylvania four or five days of the week. Um, and he, our, our dad developed just a very, very strong relationship with all of his long-term caregivers, you know, so much so that he would be uh, invited to family events, weddings, you know, they would come to our family events and, um, you know, one of his one of his earliest caregivers, who was really a, a volunteer caregiver, who was one of uh, one of the first the University of Delaware physical therapy students who helped out with our dad, um, was Jill Heathcock. And uh, at, at her wedding, um, our dad was one of the, the, the three fathers at the wedding, essentially. He was given the same sort of, uh, hmm. what is it, corsage. I mean, then so, or boutonniere. And so, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, he, he developed such very strong relationships with all of his caregivers. And we... Um, develop some, such close, strong relationships with, with all of our caregivers. And I think that's important because um, the relationship with your caregiver is very intimate. They're in, they're in your life, in all aspects of your life, especially if you have ALS. Um, and, you know, it was just great that, that, that they were able to connect with our dad and our family uh, on, on multiple levels. Yeah, I can share personally, my grandfather had ALS. My grandmother on my other side had Parkinson's disease. Um, and I'm not too excited about my genetics, I guess, but... Um, but they, um, they both had communication issues and they weren't able to take advantage of this kind of technology for various reasons. Um, and I can only imagine the positive effect it would have had on their professional caregivers with, with nurses and whatnot and with my family caregivers had they been able to express what, what emotions and, and thoughts they've had. And I think that that again, is something that's not written into the mission statement of the program, but it's just such a valuable thing, the connection to the caregivers and to the families that wouldn't exist without this technology. Yeah, I mean, I think that's completely true. Yeah, there, I mean, again, it's, it's particularly because you said it's a mantra where we're thinking about caregivers, we think about them all the time. I mean, they are just a remarkable group of people uh, who hold a special place in our hearts and hold a special place in Dad's heart? So I think uh, I think the feeling's mutual. So that's all that your father did. That's what your family did. Um, I'm saying those things past tense because it's there's a lot that the Mackler family has done, um, including relationships with the Biden family, which we didn't bring up. Um, and it's almost you know that seems like another people would just bring that up first of all. The vice president's family came to my events, but you know it's like oh yeah they did that. Uh, yeah. But what's what's your goal and, and plan for the future for this program and just your uh, perspective on supporting ALS families? So I think first and foremost is to continue to make the technology available to everybody who needs it and wants it in the, in the greater Philadelphia area. I think a secondary goal is 
to spread this around the country to as many places as possible, uh, to as many chapters uh, to, as as possible. Uh, again, the more the more people in the country to know about this technology and have access to it, it's lives saved and, and lives extended. Uh, and then I think sort of third, just uh, pushing the envelope with public awareness with technology companies, some of the things, again, that, that Steve Gleason and his team are doing with Microsoft in particular uh, is really, really advancing the ball, remarkably so, for uh, for for families dealing with ALS everywhere. Uh, and, and to have advocates like Steve uh, and like folks uh, who are lesser known around the country is really invaluable for every future person who's diagnosed with ALS. Well, that's really wonderfully put, and I think we share those same desires and values. We're, you're make, together, we're going to make this technology better and more accessible, and not just extend life, but extend living. Absolutely. Well said. Absolutely. Good. Well, I'm doing a decent job as communicator, then. Um, <laughs> definitely. So, um, well, like I said, today is Thanksgiving, and we're recording this, and I just want to extend my thanks um, from all of the ALS families in our area to the Mackler family. Um, and then to, and to all the others who helped make this a possible, um, you can learn more about the Scott A. Mackler uh, Assistive Technology Program at www.alsphiladelphia.org, including how to contribute, uh, donate, volunteer, generally with the chapter, uh, to support this and other essential programs. Again, not just to extend life, but to extend living uh, for all people with ALS. Uh, thank you again for joining us. and. I hope you all can subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on social media and get involved in the fight against ALS today. Thank you, guys.